Good morning. Our scripture reading is from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1 through 9. If you could turn there in your Bibles, if not, they'll be on the screen. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and from uncleanness. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And I will remove from the land the prophet and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will speak to him, you shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him will pierce him through many prophecies when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to see, but he will say, I am no prophet. I'm a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, these wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against the shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire. I will refine them as one refined silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. And if together we could say this, church, I will say... They are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade. The word of our Lord stands forever. Thank you for the reading. Pastor Andrew is probably the gutsiest pastor on our staff. He's always uh, wanting to memorize scripture, and whenever he's given a chance, he recites it. It's not easy to do, like I said before. But thank you for the reading, and thank you for the prayer, Brother Jansen. Uh, I have Gina Hamilton, uh, recording her as the first-timer. Gina, where are you sitting? Let's recognize you. Let's give Gina a warm welcome. All right, glad you can join us today. I recognize a few other new faces, but uh, if we haven't caught you already, please uh, stop by the welcome desk. We can get your information and, and uh, send you a hello during the week. Okay, uh, last week, we were working through chapter 12, and uh, the chapter ended with a vision of God pouring out grace that would, would enable his people to weep bitterly over the one they have unjustly pierced. I hope you remember at least a part of that message. And so we said that as God's people, uh, we're called not to simply shed tears of sorrow over the one who bled and died for us, but to shed tears of repentance right, for being guilty of sin, which was the very reason why Jesus had to die for us. Right? The cross was something not only done for us, but it was something done by us was one of the points I shared. Now, my hope and prayer is that God will give all of you the grace to know the absolute importance of humbling ourselves before God and, and calling out to him in faith and repenting of our sins. I hope that grace is given to all of us. But see, the gospel would not be good news if that was the end of the story. Like, imagine if we all cried out to God for mercy and forgiveness and all we heard from, from heaven is silence. Nothing but silence. Right, then we'd only be left with uncertainty, right? as in maybe God heard my cries for help, or I hope that one day he will hear me. Right? There's no assurance in that. 
And this is why chapter 13 is so important, because it essentially is a continuation of God's redemption story and and what we should expect in this world as we live out our Christian lives. And for this message, I chose to outline it in four parts. You know, I try try to keep the messages tight each Sunday, but this one was very difficult to do, so I had to choose four parts, not not my typical three, okay? Uh, So part one, uh, we're going to call it the fountain of cleansing. Part two, the removal of idols. Part three, the shepherd struck. And part four, the refiner's fire. Okay, I'm just going to walk through this text with you. So part one, the fountain of cleansing. Verse one says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So we're basically told that what follows the tears of repentance mentioned last week is the promise that God will open up a fountain of cleansing for his people. That is great news, brothers and sisters. Isn't this one of the deepest longings of the human soul, right? To be made clean. Don't we all want to be made clean? Because to be unclean as a person has always meant dynamic play out in the unclean leper who has been treated as an outcast throughout all of human history. We can also see this play out in the average person who tries to justify himself or herself by being a good person, by trying to live up to various righteous standards, whether those standards come from traditional religion or some form of secular religion. We see this all the time in our day especially. I don't want to get canceled by people, so I'm just going to try to abide by the social righteous standards set before me. Who wants to get canceled? No one. In fact, I I received this weird message through Facebook that our old Cornerstone page is getting canceled, even though we we haven't used it in like, what, five years? (laughs) I'm going to verify if that's a real message or not, or if that's uh, some kind of spam thing, but I I woke up with that message. What? Why? I already got canceled, by the way, uh, doing Zoom. I don't know why. I'm not allowed to Zoom anymore, if you didn't know. <laughs> These, well, I don't want to cancel, all right? Don't cancel me. That, that's our cry. You know, the truth is that people tend to obsess over trying to scrub themselves clean while ignoring the fact that God has already offered a fountain of cleansing where all our sins could be completely washed away. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've heard this kind of language many times before, haven't you? But if you still don't find much comfort in these words, it could be because you actually misunderstand what God means when he says that he has cleansed you from your sins. See, what you repeatedly hear from God is that you have been made clean. I have made you clean. But then when you see yourself in the mirror each morning, You see something different. You see someone unclean, still very filthy in every sense of the word. And so you grow discouraged and weary over time. And I completely understand because that's the same thing I struggle with too every morning. But it's in those moments when we need to remember that God's justifying grace is different from his sanctifying grace. You see, when God declares us clean, even though we're clearly still sinners, 
He's bestowing upon us what's called the grace of justification. Simply put, justification is when God treats us just as if we have never sinned. That's one helpful way to remember that term, okay? It's just as if we have never sinned. You know, we may not yet be holy in a practical day-to-day sense, but in our status, right, positionally before God, we are counted as holy. How is that possible, you say? Well, it's by virtue of the fountain of cleansing that is filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath the flood as the great hymn goes, lose all their guilty stains. That's how. Are we still dirty in a practical sense? Of course we are. Do we still struggle with sin? Yes, we do. Is the ground still filthy when snow completely covers over it? And are we still waiting for that first heavy snowfall? But there's something about snow-covered land that gives us peace, right? And I believe it's because it serves as this visible illustration of what God does for us as he covers our own stained, sinned lives. You see, when we place our trust in Christ, we're not immediately made perfect in our practical holiness yet. That's what you see in the mirror, not perfect. See, but we're given a robe of righteousness that covers our filth, our guilt and shame. And that's what God sees. That's what he promises to see. That is the grace of justification. God treats us just as if we have never sinned. But in our passage today, we not only see these elements of the grace of justification, we also see the elements of the grace of what's called sanctification, which is God now doing the more hands-on work of practically cleansing away the remnant sin that daily plagues us in this life. And so that takes us to part two, the removal of idols. Listen to verse two. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove the land the, from, the, from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. A few weeks ago, you heard me say that the main problem with God's people throughout their history was not that they weren't praying to God. Remember that passage or that message? But the problem was that they were praying to God, Yahweh, but also, in addition to that, praying to these other false gods. And remember, God called upon his people, therefore, to ask rain from him, the Lord. It's because they were praying to other gods as well and not just to him. They were practicing what we call a syncretistic faith, worshiping Yahweh, but also stashing away these household gods called teraphim. We find them in these Jewish homes. These small idols made of wood. It was very common. And so God looked at all the remnant idolatry 
that he saw in his people and he promised to get rid of all of them so that we, as God's people, could become a more sanctified people, resembling our perfect Heavenly Father more and more over time. That is, brothers and sisters, the grace of sanctification. It's different from justification. Sanctification is meant to be a lifelong process, as described in verses like Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That's a process, you see. It's not an immediate one-time deal. I want you to notice that there's a special attention placed on the work of false prophets, and, and yet you see God's commitment to remove them from the land in this chapter. Let's think about false prophets for a moment, okay? False prophets were people who essentially made a living by telling lies while couching it in God's truth, or as God's truth, right? They're much like the modern-day cult leaders and false teachers who lead people astray toward worshiping false idols. And they are the ones who make idolatry more appealing to an already vulnerable people, which is why I believe God commits to getting rid of such voices. Look at verse 2 and 3. It says, I will remove from the land the prophets. In verse 3, and if anyone, again, prophesies falsely is implied here. Anyone who prophesies falsely, look what it says. His father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. It's like, did I read that correctly? Is that what we actually read together? Is this for real? That the parents themselves would pierce their own child? Is this for real? What we see here is God using this very unique parent-child relationship to reveal how our own idolatry plays out in real life. This may surprise some of you, but the Bible's teaching is not soft at all toward disobedient children. Okay, in Deuteronomy 21, for instance, parents are told to bring their rebellious sons to the elders of the town and have all the men of the town stone that son to death. And in Exodus 21, it says, anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. That's a death penalty on kids who are just choose to cuss out their parents. Okay? I mean, that's like a, a mild form of sin in our culture, isn't it? You know, kids doing that all the time. That's the teaching of the Bible, and yet there's no evidence in the Bible or in any historical document that I know of that suggests Jewish parents actually followed through with these commands and took the lives of their own children. It wasn't commonplace if it ever happened. I'm sure it did happen occasionally, but it wasn't commonplace. I can't see any record of this anywhere, especially in the Bible. You know why? Because if parents are given a choice between obeying God and saving the lives of their own children, even if their children deserved the death penalty, essentially, most parents, and I say most, not all, most parents would choose to save the lives of their children. 
God says that's idolatry, right? You're prioritizing something other than God. I was reminded once again of the mom who was given one chance to share during one of the senior banquets I was a part of, okay? It wasn't this, our church, okay? It was, this was a church in Philly. I was serving for many years there, and I was a youth pastor, and so I had to do a little, you know, senior banquets every year, and, and I usually give parents a chance to actually share some words, you know, meaningful words, just like we do in baptism. We have the parents share meaningful words of blessing. Well, same thing, senior banquet, great chance for parents to say some meaningful words of blessing and encouragement to their graduating teenagers, right? Well, this mom was asked to share something. She had the mic, and she could have shared many appropriate things, such as, son, whatever happens in this life, I want you to always keep the Lord as your first priority. And that would have been so appropriate to say, but she didn't choose to go that route. She could have said, son, whatever happens, I... I never want to see you stray from God's word. I want you to be a man of God's word. And she could have said that, and it would have really blessed everyone there and encouraged her son. But no, she decided to say something more like, whatever happens in this life, son, I just want you to be happy. I just want you to be happy. That's the heart of idolatry that God is revealing to us from this parent-child relationship. You see, because most parents, they just want their kid to be happy no matter what. They just want their kid to go to a reputable college, right? Get a good, high-paying job and be successful in life. That is how idolatry plays out in the real world. And that's why the example of Abraham being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, it sounds so strange to us. You see, Isaac, he wasn't some lying prophet who deserved to die like the children mentioned in our passage today. <laughs> he wasn't a criminal. He did nothing wrong in the story. He was innocent, and yet... Just because God commanded Abraham to do so, Abraham was willing to obey God and sacrifice his own son, Isaac. It's unthinkable for most parents. I mean, most parents, like I said, wouldn't even be willing to take the life of their child even if they were fully deserving of it. Most parents wouldn't even be willing to give their children over to the authorities to take care of the the crime that their child committed. Some of you who are more keen, you're probably thinking, actually, pastor, the parents these days, they take the life of their innocent children all the time <laughs> in the form of abortion, and, and you would be absolutely right to think so. That, that's true. But you see, in that instance, they're not choosing between God and their children. If they chose God in that instance, they would not abort. And 99% of the time, abortion wouldn't happen. In that instance, they're choosing between themselves, a false God that they've erected in their lives. They're the right, God of their own lives and their own children. And with those two, a false God, and guess who they choose? It just, it just goes to show, brothers and sisters, that any time, no matter who it may be, 
We will all, in the end, serve our God, whoever that God may be, whether it's a true God or a false God. So God is exposing what our idols are here. There's one more thing our passage says about false prophets that I believe would be worth mentioning. Verse 4, on that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. Okay, this is referring to false prophets. And it says, he will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive. One thing you have to know about hairy cloaks is this is clothing that was commonly associated with ancient prophets. Okay, you can think of John, John the Baptist who was the one who paved the way for Christ. Remember, he was known to, to wear a hairy garment or a hairy cloak. And so it's like, essentially it's saying they're, they're not going to want to be considered prophets anymore because they're going to be ashamed of what they've done in the past. They don't want to be looked upon as prophets. And he will say in verse 5, I'm no prophet, you see. I'm, no pro I'm not a prophet, right? I'm a worker of the soil. They're going to lie. They're going to try to say there's something else. And verse 6, and if one asks him, well then, what are these wounds on your back? They'll again lie. They'll say, these are wounds I received from somewhere else. You see, the, the wounds mentioned here are believed to be produced by the strange rituals that false prophets likely adopted from pagan practices, right? Some of you may remember how the prophets of Baal engaged uh, in violent acts against their own bodies, right, in order to get the attention of their own gods, it was a crazy, frenzied ritual that they endured, had to endure through. You know, these violent acts could have involved cutting, you know, whipping, some form of beating, either by others or self-flagellation. But the result was a wounded body offered to their gods with the intent of saying, is this good enough now to get your attention? Am I good enough for you to be your prophet for the people? Right, that, that was sort of the underlying reason for all that chaos, which takes us to part three, the shepherd struck. Brothers and sisters, the, the Christian faith is not against a disciplined lifestyle, but it is clearly against trying to prove your worth before God through such violent practices. In fact, nothing we do, no matter how impressive it may be, to others can make us worthy of God's grace. That's why we never, the Christian church has really never taught that you should intentionally harm your bodies in order to gain favor from the Lord. Okay, I mean, there may have been a dark point in Catholic church history, but we as a church have never taught that you should harm your bodies to, to gain favor from the Lord. It's pointless and it actually cheapens the sacrifice of the one who already suffered, bled, and died for you, can't you see? It cheapens what Jesus has done for you. Now, verse 7 says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. So the sword is going to go against the shepherd, and it says it's going to strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. So what we see here, again, is an explanation of actually how God's redemption story unfolds. It foreshadows the 
suffering and death of Jesus. And we're basically told that the good shepherd will give his life for the sheep. He'll be struck by the sword. And there's actually an unexpected connection here made between this passage in Zechariah and a New Testament passage in John 19, which I want to share with you. Uh, John chapter 19, verse 34 says, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. So Jesus was dead. He was hanging on the cross. He's dead. And now the soldiers come and they pierce his side to make sure he's dead. And it says at once there came out blood. And what else came out? Remember? Water. Blood and water. Okay, have you ever wondered why water flowed from Jesus' body after he was pierced. Have you ever asked that question? Why water? During college, I remember reading books on apologetics, and some of them offered these medical explanations as to why water flowed from Jesus' side. And I'm not denying that these medical explanations could be, could be very accurate and, and right, but I'm now, after doing a more in-depth study of Zechariah, I'm now beginning to think that Maybe there's a theological explanation as well okay, as to why water poured out from Jesus' side. Okay? I mean, could the greater purpose here be to show us that through Jesus' death, Jesus was meant to fulfill the promise that he is to be the fountain of cleansing for us? Could that be the more significant explanation? That though we are guilty of piercing our shepherd, he responds to us not with anger or vengeance, but with grace and the fountain of cleansing. That even as you pierce him, what we get is water flowing from his side so that we will be washed clean. That even the idols we've tightly clung to would eventually be removed from our lives. I believe that that is a very plausible explanation. And I wish I could end the sermon here on that encouraging note, but that's not how the chapter ends, okay? Because before we reach heaven's glory, we're actually told that things will get worse for us first. And that's the part I need to mention as well. So part four, the refiner's fire. The shepherd is struck, sheep are scattered, and then in verse 8 it says, and the whole land declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this one-third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. And they will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. And that's how our chapter ends today. You see, this, the scattering of sheep and a life of persecution follow the striking of the good shepherd. That's how redemption unfolds. Look, I mean, we're, we're told, brothers and sisters, straight up, that we're to expect hardship in this life, which is why I personally don't understand 
why anyone who claims to be a Christian would use the presence of suffering in their lives to reject God and to abandon the Christian faith. I don't get it. Like, are you reading the Bible, God's word? He, he's revealed these things to us already. He's told us how things are going to play out in this life already. Don't you trust him? What's interesting about these verses is that they basically foretell that not only will we suffer, but there's going to be a majority of people who will perish around us. Now, I don't think we need to get caught up in the exact numbers here. Because it's interesting, he says two-third versus one-third. And I think it's pointless to do the math, <laughs> given the ever-changing populations of the day. But I think the main idea here is, truly, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, right? And small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to everlasting life. I think that's the main point here. That the minority will be preserved. But what happens to them? Will life be easy for them? Not at all. They are to expect greater hardship and persecution in this life. Is there a fountain of cleansing made available to us? Yes, there is. But there's also this refiner's fire that we're called to walk through so that we could become purified through it. It's not meant to be a painless process. It, it, it seems clear to me, brothers and sisters, that this is the process through which God gradually, painfully removes the idols present in our lives. It's through the process of hardship and suffering. Last week, I sat down with Pastor Xiong uh, to record a version of my testimony. You know, it's, it's a part of the Get to Know Your Pastors series. And I was trying to, to delay this. I was saying, hey, you do it first, you do it first. And I don't know. I mean, it's hard for me to process my own life in a meaningful way. Uh, I had Pastor Xiong already share his testimony like four or five times over the past, you know, several years. Uh, but his testimony is great. Uh, you know, I could, I could listen to his testimony all day, every day. Um, Pastor Andrews also recently, he shared. Pastor Jacob, he shared recently. So I was, I'm the last one. I, I actually, uh, we all wanted Pastor Hugh to share, but he also said, I'm only an intern, so I don't want to share right now. <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to get to him soon. And so, okay, Hugh, I'll give you a break, and I'll, uh... so I went first. I'm sorry about that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So I was forced to process my own life, and it wasn't easy for me. Uh, but one thing I, I learned about myself is this, that there was a major issue that was like a stumbling block for me as a young believer, okay? If you, if you listen to Pastor Xiong's testimony, what really got him over the hump was seeing God as a loving father figure because his earthly father was just not present and once he saw God as this gracious, perfect heavenly father, that's when his heart melted, okay? That was, that's his story, though, right? I didn't quite have that same experience. For me, like, father, of course, you know, so, so what? God's a father, right? It didn't impact me the same way. Um, 
when I heard Sam Na's testimony, I saw, most of you haven't heard his. It's actually a good testimony as well. Uh, Brother Sam Na, he was sharing the way he got over the hump is by realizing that the Christian faith actually is a very reasonable faith. And the reason why that was revolutionary for him is because of his upbringing and he was exposed to like very emotion, this emotional version of Christianity where it's all emotion, you know, all passion, right? no thought. <laughs> and so once he encountered Christians who actually articulate what they believe, he realized, wait a second, this Christian faith is actually a very reasonable faith, right? For me, I didn't go through that process either. For me, a different story, you know. Um, I had a very hard time seeing God as fair and just because I would read the Bible and he would describe himself to be perfectly fair and just, but I see the world around me, even my own life and my own, you know, small sufferings, my dad passing away and my responsibility. How is this fair? Life is not fair. Look at all this injustice that we see around us. And then look at the Bible again. There was, there was this disconnect. It, di- it didn't quite make sense to me for a long time. And so God had, to be, God had to walk through certain passages with me and send certain people to you know, offer me wise counsel. And so over time, I realized, wait a second, <clears throat> I can't be treating God as my equal as a peer, okay, as though I can judge him for his actions and for his, the events that he ordains in this life. I, I, it's like you look at, you know, what's happening in the news sometimes and, and Congress calls upon these witnesses <laughs> and uh, you have a bunch of people right, sitting in the witness stands and people in authority are questioning, or how could you do this? How could you do that, right? And and I was like that person trying to question God as if I had the authority to do so, okay? I I guess I wasn't just treating him as a peer. I I was actually acting as if I I had greater authority than him. That was my problem for a long time. So God had to humble me, and over time I realized um. He is actually someone far greater than I even imagined. And this kind of relationship became, okay, God, me me being sanctified meant that I was viewing God more and more as God and less as my equal. And that meant that, look, it's, it's not as if all my questions got answered. That wasn't the point. It's like Job, Job's story, right? Job had many questions. Guess what? His questions in the end were not answered by God. God God did not, (laughs) he was not obligated to answer Job's questions. God simply showed up and said, Job, who do you think you are? Were you there when I laid down the foundation of the earth? You were not, right? And a series of questions followed. Job could not answer. He remained silent because he's not God. He realized that he's nothing. He knows nothing compared to God. I had to have have that experience where I realized this I know nothing. <laughs> and so God was calling me to trust him in the midst of my pain, in the midst of my suffering. Right? I didn't have all the answers, but I knew that I can trust him now because he was someone who was so much greater, so much wiser, so much more holy than who I was and who I am. It doesn't happen right away, but it's a process of growth. And 
I think uh, my story probably resonates with some of you because I know we all have a hard time dealing with the sufferings and the hardships we all face in life. But brothers and sisters, <clears throat> if you want to be able to endure through suffering with hope and with joy in your heart, God needs to become much larger in your eyes. That is the only way. And it's really important that you have a bigger view of God because it truly does matter how you respond to the various trials you face in this life. You know, the reality is that suffering, the suffering we experience can either lead us toward greater bitterness and anger, resentment, or it can lead us toward greater reliance and a deeper love for our Savior. That's why it's so important to have a bigger view of God. Don't view him as your peer. He is not your peer. He is not your equal. He's not even this. He is infinitely beyond who you are. You have no right to judge him. Who are you to judge God? And so as we walk through the refiner's fire together, know that God, he looks upon us and he graciously declares us as his people. They are my people. As flawed as they may be, they are my people. I'm working through them. I will sanctify them. They are my people, is his promise. There's great hope in that promise. And so what, what should our response be? Each of our responses should then be, the Lord is my God. I, might, I may not fully understand him at times, but the Lord is my God. So may that be our response to whatever happens to us in this life. When life becomes confusing, when we don't have all the answers, our heads may spin, but we can still say, what, all together? The Lord is my God. Right? Not only in our joys, but also in our sorrows, we say, what? The Lord is my God. In sickness or in health, we say all together, the Lord is my God. On my news feed this morning, I was told that the U.S. power grid is vulnerable <laughs> and that it would be a good idea to prepare for a massive power outage. Right, did you get that news as well? That's the first thing I saw, one of the first things I saw this morning. I said, what? <laughs> I guess I need to prepare. I got a big family, you know? What if we run out of water, electricity? But then I remember this message. Even if we ever find ourselves in the middle of the next major crisis, whether that be virus-induced or someone striking our electric grid, let's be able to respond with, the Lord is my God. Amen? Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we humbly submit ourselves to your cleansing grace, recognizing our need for both your justifying grace as well as your sanctifying grace. And Lord, as you have promised us a life of hardship, would you be gracious in granting us a resilient and persevering spirit that we may be part of the one-third who through the refiner's fire emerged refined as silver and tested as gold. And in the end, no matter how fiery our earthly trials may be, may we gladly declare, the Lord is my God. It's in the name of Jesus, our precious Redeemer, we pray. Amen. Amen.